Well, we come back this morning to the book of Romans, and God willing, we'll make some progress in our studies in the book of Romans. Um, last time we were together, we just uh, focused in upon the attribute of divine wrath that Paul begins this uh, body of the letter concerning his exposition of uh, the gospel. Interestingly enough, does not begin with divine love, but begins with divine wrath. But as we endeavor to say, when you're dealing with divine attributes, you're dealing with all that is in God. And so wrath is not something that is opposite to God's true nature. It's part of God's nature, part of his holy nature, part of his just and wise and loving nature. And so even there is such a thing as wrath being informed by love. Wrath being because God loves his creation that he made for his glory and uh, for the good of his creatures. And sin comes in and it destructs and it destroys and it uh, is a threat uh, to the goodness of the creation of God. And so when something comes to threat threatens something that's holy to you, something you desire to keep pure and 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 ho- and and and, and uh, unsullied. Uh, you meet with you meet that with with uh, displeasure. You meet that with uh, a sense of you can't be indifferent to that invading force. You must meet that invading force with opposite force, and that's divine wrath. Divine wrath is that which contemplates sin in all of its foulness and evil and it desires to expunge it it desires to rid rid itself of it and um, again you just can't divorce the sin of man from the man who men and people who sin it's uh, the sin of people that god's wrath is against but it is expressed not so much in terms of the personal people but the ungodliness that characterizes them as wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and we mentioned ungodliness is really not, it's not the same thing as unrighteousness. It really does mean piety or devotion, commitment, consecration, dedication to God, becoming like God because of that intimacy of relationship we have towards Him. Uh, unrighteousness deals with divine norms, divine standards, keeping uh, divine standards or violating divine standards. And uh, when we break God's standards of norm, uh, and norms, we're guilty of unrighteousness. And so God's wrath is revealed against the whole lot of it. All that is against God, all that is against his norms, God stands fully against. His wrath is revealed from heaven uh, against it. And those who are ungodly and those who are unrighteous are those who in unrighteousness are said to suppress the truth that's the end of verse 18 they suppress the truth um, they it's not as if people don't know truth it's not as if people live in a universe devoid of truth devoid of the reality of God devoid of the reality of his holiness and his his, his being, his attributes, his, 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 his wrath, his justice, his love. No, they live in the midst of the theater of all of God's display of who he is in the world that he has made. And so Paul says what they do with that truth that they receive from God is they hold it down. They hold it down. They suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And he goes on to explain what he means by this truth suppression. It's that what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So God has given a revelation of himself, not so much in the word, not so much in what we call um, um, specific revelation, or what's the opposite of general revelation? My mind is at a blank right now. I'm sorry. 
No, that's the that's the creation. But uh, in revealed revela- in revealed revelations, that's a that's a that's a doubling of the word. But in um, the revelation God's given of Himself in Scripture, there's general revelation, and then there's what's the word I'm thinking of? This. Well, it could be. I guess it is specific, but I, that doesn't sound like it's the right word that's generally used. But it's just, it's just not coming to me right now. But in the revelation we have in Scripture, you know, it's the, it's the idea of revelation containing two books. There's two books that God has given: the book of creation, the book of general revelation, the book that everybody in the universe has access to, whether we've ever heard of Jesus or whether we've heard of uh, God's word. Um, all people have access to the revelation God has given of Himself. Um, he's, God's made it plain to them. God has shown it to them. This revelation that God has given about himself. And he goes on to explain it further in verse 20. And you see all these, uh, this linkage of four. Of four, verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them. Four, verse 20, his invisible attributes, uh, namely his eternal power and divinity have been clearly perceived. And, and, so, and then four, although they knew God. So he, Paul is adding uh, to the picture uh, more explanatory words. So if you don't get what he says uh, entirely in verse uh, 19, well, consult verse 20 and move on to verse 21, because Paul is simply going to give a clearer picture of it with the use of these explanatory words for. Um, and he says in verse uh, 24, his invisible attributes, namely... What are these invisible attributes? These things about God that we cannot see because God himself is the invisible God and yet the invisible God uh, can be known, can be seen. What cannot be seen can be seen. Um, His eternal power and divine nature has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And so the invisible God can be known can be seen, the unknowable God can be known by the revelation he has given of his eternal power his divine nature that exists ever. it's either ever since the creation of the world or from the creation of the world either the creation of the world is a temporal clause going back to creation, so from creation on, every people in every place have clearly seen the invisible attributes of God, his eternal power and divinity has been made known to them ever since the creation of the world. It could be a temporal clause that's used there, or it could be a source clause from the creation, from the creation that we see around us. Not so much going back from creation as the starting point, but from the creation that we see all around us. Every creature, everywhere, sees the invisible attributes of God, his eternal power and divinity have been clearly seen as we see the things that are made. Again, did I mention Calvin's picture of humanity in a theater beholding the works of God? And God is the great actor upon the stage of the world. And we're all as in a theater beholding the acts of God, the acts of creation as we see the beauty of creation, we see the, uh, the, the power of creation in the, in the wind and in the storm. Uh, we see the, the goodness of creation and God giving the, the, the sun to shine upon the good and the evil, his rain to fall upon the just and the unjust, that the things of God are clearly made known, clearly seen. And yet all that has been seen through the things that are made or from the creation of the world, um, it doesn't lead them to the knowledge of God that we might call saving knowledge of God. And so the end of the story, at the end of verse 20, 
is not so that they're saved, but that so that they're without excuse. This is not a revelation that God has given to of himself that leads to the faith that brings forgiveness of sins. It doesn't bring them to become part of his covenant people. It's a knowledge that leaves them without the knowledge of God that's a saving knowledge. And so it's a general knowledge. It's a knowledge that is um, in creation or from creation. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a true knowledge. It's a true knowledge. It's not a, um, a distorted or a twisted knowledge. It's a true knowledge of God that's given from the creation of the world. And it's not just a knowledge of any God in general or some concept of God in general. It's the true God. It's the God of creation who makes himself known through creation. And so it's not a matter that this general revelation that God has given is something that people work up from below, you might say. In other words, it's not the work of the philosopher who endeavors to observe the world and uh, reason through the things he sees in the world to some existence of a deity, uh, something like uh, Aristotle's uh, prime mover, or, or something like um, um, you know, Plato's view of forms, and uh, we live in a world of, uh, uh, of uh, shadows that uh, correspond to some invisible uh, form. Now, these are things that human reason reasons out, but that's not what Paul's talking about. <laughs> Paul's view of philosophy tends not to be very complimentary. He says uh, of the philosophers in the Corinthian letter, that God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. Speaking about the wisdom that comes from human philosophy. It, it doesn't really measure up to true knowledge. It's just a distorted and a twisted knowledge. It's not, the, it's not the knowledge that false religion has. It's the true knowledge of God that all people possess before they go through this process of suppressing that knowledge. That's a true knowledge in their unrighteousness. You know, to whatever, whatever extent that knowledge has dawned upon our minds and hearts, as soon as it begins to do that work of dawning upon our minds and hearts, we resist it. We flee from it. We say we don't want to live in its light. We don't want to bask under the rays of that knowledge that God has made known of himself. It's the reaction of Adam in the Garden of Eden, running away from the presence of God. And so whatever God has made known of himself, of his divine attributes, of his power, Paul says we're doing the work of suppressing the truth. It's not like we're, we're grasping the, the revelation God's given and say, oh, how can we then, we know him this much, how can we know him better? No, we don't know him really at all. It's, it's a knowledge that because there is this rebellion against that knowledge, it leads people at the end of the day, verse 20 says, to be without excuse. Then there's another four, another word of explanation. Again, in verse 21, four, although they knew God, this is Romans 1, verse 21, for although they knew God, and so it's not just they knew about God, they knew God. They knew the real God, the true God, the creator God, the God of providence, the God of history, the God of, of Jesus Christ. He's revealed himself in the creation, and they knew God. They did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened, and claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they made the first of the great exchanges that are spoken of in this text. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God 
for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And that's basically a quotation. This is Psalm 102. Some of you have a cross-reference. Tell me. Uh, Verse 23, whether the cross-reference you're given there is uh, Psalm 102 or Psalm 105 or 6. It's somewhere in there. Anybody have a cross-reference? Hmm? Nobody has a cross-reference, huh? I'm sorry? The Jeremiah 2.11 is that, yeah, that's another great exchange that they've made. That they've exchanged the, the fountain of living waters for broken cisterns, the Canona water. That's the exchange in Jeremiah 2. But I'm surprised that the, because there is, I'm sorry? Psalm 106 verse? 20? Yeah, it's a long psalm, so let's just go there. Psalm 106 and verse 20? Yeah, there it is. There it is. Okay, here it speaks about what Israel did. You know, again, a lot of people take the Romans passage in Romans 1 and they say, well, that's describing the heathen. That's describing those that are not part of Israel. That's speaking about those that don't have um, special revelation. And I guess that's the word. General revelation and special revelation. I don't know why my mind is drawing a blank. Not special and specific, but uh, not general and specific, but general and special. Special revelation that God's given to us in the scriptures, through his prophets, through his, through his, his revealed word. We have um, Israel in the wilderness. They, make a, they made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. There at Mount Sinai, or Horeb it's called in the book of Deuteronomy. They worshipped a metal image, something made of gold. And they exchanged the glory of God for an image of an ox that eats grass. They changed the glory of the immortal God into the likeness of four-footed beasts, into the likeness of um, an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. And so, therefore, he, he, he would destroy them had not Moses, the chosen one, stood in the breach to turn away his wrath from destroying them. So, again, here's God's response to human sin, his response to idolatry, his response to their... I mean, God revealed himself to them, not just in terms of um, general, general revelation, but Israel had the special revelation of God. They saw the ten plagues that came upon the Egyptians. They saw this Red Sea open. Um, they saw the mighty works of God providing manna from heaven and they still made, a, made an image it's astounding but for the reality that the human heart will ever flee from God but for the reality that the human heart ever does not like to retain God in their knowledge is ever looking to make that exchange of the fountain of living waters for broken cisterns that can hold no water, or for the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. This was not just something the pagans do. It's something that Israel was guilty of. And Paul does take the language of the 106th Psalm in his description here. So he's not excluding the Jews from the condemnation. The Jews don't come in for special attention um, until uh, chapter 2. Here I think this is a general description of people having received the knowledge of God uh, here through general revelation or even through special revelation, wherever the knowledge of God comes. A man's tendency is to suppress. He's a truth suppressor. He holds down the truth in unrighteousness. And so again, what's God's response? 
Well, again, it's in wrath. It's in wrath. And that wrath is expressive of his divine displeasure. It's not expressive of out-of-control rage. I mean, human wrath is like that. We just get so angry we can burst. God's not so angry that he can burst. But God is displeased with human sin. God cannot dwell with human sin. And human sin cannot dwell with him. How can we dwell? Isaiah says, with everlasting burnings. I mean, he's the pure and holy God who must react to human sin in wrath. But what form does that wrath take? And again, amongst the pagans, it was lightning bolts that came down from heaven. It was the God's meeting together and considering what mischief can we be up to uh, to make the human life upon earth particularly distressing how can we distress uh, human beings well God's not concerned so much to distress human beings but he's concerned to show his displeasure he's to show his displeasure and, and how did he show his displeasure with the sin of the first man in Eden is he excluded him from the place of his presence right you don't want to dwell with me you don't need to dwell with me cast him out of the garden they went east of Eden. Abel, I'm sorry, Cain also made a city in Nob going out from the presence of the Lord. Out from the presence of the Lord. They didn't want to dwell with God. They didn't want nearness to God. God says, you don't want to dwell with me? You don't want nearness to me? Fine. In his wrath, he exiles them. In his wrath, he sends them away. In his wrath, he says, you don't need to be near me. In fact, you can be very far away from me. And so what God does is, in his wrath, he gives them up. He gives them up. And you see the language, verse 24, therefore, God gave them up. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. What did he give them up to? We gave them up to impurity. The dishonoring of their bodies. He gave them up to dishonorable passions. He gave them up to a debased mind to do what is not to be done. God says, you don't want to live under my laws? Fine, make a, make a few laws of your own and see how you like it. You want to live under your own government? You want to live under your own notions of what is good? Let's see how you do. Let's see how you do. Let you loose on your own and see what you come up with. What do you come up with? You come up with every kind of twisted, distorted, perverted evil under heaven. God says, you want to sin? Go ahead. Sin to your heart's content. And see how you like it. See, that's where we are. We want sin, but within manageable control. We want to keep it under control. We, want, we, don't, want, we don't want every, every angry thought to turn to murder. We don't want every lustful thought to turn to, uh, to rape and to degra- degradation. But, you know, once you give vent to the desires of your heart, where does it come under control? Under what discipline does it come? Without God, without his laws, without his restraints, without his presence. We need God's presence, really, if we're going to function as human beings made in his image and likeness. And, and the greatest... Display of divine wrath is saying man in his image can go it alone. Go it alone. Now ultimately you don't go completely on our own. Again, if you ever read the Mary Shelley's monster story of Frankenstein, you know the great uh, sin of Victor Frankenstein was, was he made a, a creature. First of all, as a creature he ended up hating and loathing. You know, a lot of times you think, well, it's just a creature that was not under his control. 
Yeah, and that would have been bad enough. But he hated that creature. He loathed that creature. He couldn't put his eyes upon that creature. And you know what? That creature wanted to be loved. That was, that was a great, incredible thing. But the real story of Frankenstein, but the way he gets told is the creature gets out of his control. And that's a real problem too. But you know, God loves this creation even in its worst. Even at its most wicked and rebellion, rebellious. Even with his wrath being revealed and giving them up. His love has not let his creation go. He still loves his creation. He sends the gospel to his creation. His sun shines upon the just and the unjust. His rain falls upon the good and the evil. His, his tender mercies are over all of his works. He calls us back to himself, even when we've sinned time without number. But just no way to control the wicked, wickedness and the evil of the human heart. Just when it's off left to itself, it, it, will be, it will be gas chambers. It will be programs. Uh, it will be gulags. It will be the indiscriminate bombings of cities and hospitals in the Ukraine. It, 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 there's, no, there's no way to control the evil of the human heart. It's flying planes into buildings. Every evil imaginable. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. Paul emphasizes sexual sins. He emphasizes particularly homosexual sins. Those who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship the creature rather than the creator, you know what they end up doing? They end up worshiping the human body. A creature. And they worship the human body in terms of dishonorable passions. The failure to use the body for divine purposes. The body made for, for God. The body made not for fornication, not for sexual immorality. The body made for the Lord. And the body made for human procreation. The body made for the enjoyment of sexual relations within the proper boundaries. But people refuse to be bound by God's uh, ordinances once they're on their own, once they do their own thing. And so women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, engage in lesbian conduct. Men likewise give up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. And Paul probably saw this in the bathhouses of the ancient cities of of, of, of the Roman Empire. You probably got to see this up close and personal. But a lot of this thing, these things were done uh, without any qualms of conscience that this may be incorrect or wrong. Um, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the penalty for their error. There's no way you can take this language of Paul and say it's some kind of special homosexual acts that Paul's concerned about such as what's called pederasty, where there's the, uh, you know, basically the raping of, of minor children. And Paul says, well, that's the problem with homosexuality in the ancient world. And there's lots of ways in which the, I guess, you know, the pro-homosexual lobby desires to take Paul's words and to interpret them not with their full intent. But the reality is, the full intent is that whatever you make of it, homosexuality is not part of the divine order. It's not part of the original intent of creation. It's part of human sin. 
Now, I think the problem is sometimes the way we read these words, we think, well, here's some special class of human sin that speaks of divine abandonment in a way that other people don't ever experience divine abandonment. But yeah, I, I don't think what Paul's doing here is he's saying that here are special instances of what we might call human veniality, of human evil that just looks to be wicked and depraved and self-centered and hurtful to other people. I don't think that that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about where sin makes fools of us. Sin makes fools of us. We take the natural things and we just twist them and distort them and pervert them against that which is against nature. Like the kind of paganism that he's spoken about where you exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for the likeness of the image of beasts and creepy things. Imagine bowing before a golden calf. How absurd! How absurd! What good is a golden calf can ever do for you? And really, what good is a homosexual relationship can ever do for you? I think that's, that, that's Paul's intent. It, it's not productive of anything that is part of the divine design, which is that marriage brings forth children. <laughs> be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, homosexuality does not bring us to fill the earth with image bearers. It does not bring human relations to proper fruition in terms of family life. Uh, I know there's adoption, I know there's all sorts of things that people say, well, this is what we can do to make it more like a biblical relationship, but it's really not a biblical relationship as God drew up the design. But I don't think it's saying that you, that homosexuals are specially corrupt and specially wicked and specially hateful. And I know that people tend to try to do that. They try to make it... I remember a pastor once saying, he read something about... I guess one homosexual, maybe it was two, who knows, but it was a limited number of homosexuals who supposedly were going around New Orleans at Mardi Gras injecting people that, uh, in the crowd with AIDS-infected blood. Now again, I'd, I don't know that that's a common practice among homosexual people today. I don't think so, but there were people that did that. But there are people that do all kinds of things, regardless of what they're heterosexual, homosexual, or whatever. I mean, criminality is not, is not uh, limited to one group of people. You know, but because we face the reality of the aggressive pro-gay lobby, we tend then to just push back against it with a lot of unreasonable, unjustifiable claims. Um, it's, ba- it's good enough that we just affirm what Scripture says, that this is not part of the divine design. And, you know, there's a lot of Christians who recognize the reality. I th- you know, again, we, we, we even push back against what I think are uh, normal, reasonable accommodations to the fact that there is such a thing in a fallen world as same-sex attraction. Now, I don't know what that is, because I never had it myself. It was never anything I had. Nobody had to tell me, like girls, it just, I got to be a teenager, and I did. It was just something that I never made a conscious decision to do or to don't. And there are people in the world who say we never made a conscious decision to like same sex, but this is where we are, just like you. And I, I don't want to tell them that that's not what they experience, because I don't know that it's not what, I, I just listen to what they say. And I know they're Christian people, Christian men, who have determined that that's what God has made me to... I'm sorry, I shouldn't say God made me. Sin brought me. Sin brought me to the place I have this propensity. Just like lots of men have a propensity not to be monogamous. To just run after relation after relation after relation after relation. 
Is that normal? Is that natural? Is that part of divine design? No. But it's part of what some got people say, that's how I am. And uh, I can't be restrained. But you have to be restrained if you can be a Christian. If you follow Christ, you can't say, I just like, give my, 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 my heart vent to all of its impulses and all of its desires. And so there are homosexual people that say, my life is a life of celibacy. It's a life where I recognize what God's called me to, to have no marriage, no relations, to be celibate and to devote myself to the things of the gospel. There's a number of very excellent Christian theologians who are just in that mindset. Again, they don't deny that they share with homosexual people the kind of problems that they possess, but they feel like we have ministry to these people. Again, not to make them something that they can't be. I think one of the worst things that has been done is trying to pressure um, people with same-sex attraction to say, well, you know, just trust Jesus and he's going to make your attraction towards women. That doesn't seem to work because too many people have been married and it's ended up in a horror show. It's a horror show. So you really have to listen to what people are telling you. You really have to be sympathetic to people. And you don't have to, and, and we don't need to, to respond to the aggressive gay lobby with an anti-gay agenda. <laughs> you know, this is the pro-gay agenda, has their agenda. I think Christians respond to that sometimes excessively. Sometimes going to the other extreme. And advocate things that, you know, there are people who seem to be telling us it's just not what exists in the world that you just can't pressure people through some sort of conversion therapy to be what they don't think they're ever going to be so I don't think you pressure them I'd say okay you're committed to live for Christ then it's not with any sexual expression you are a celibate for Jesus and I'm, I'm very content with that and I think that's what people say that's what their life needs to consist in to be faithful to Christ to be faithful to the gospel as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ rather than saying well the Bible says such were some of you so we're going to take you know the Bible says such were some of you in terms of active performance of deeds that now they don't do any longer doesn't necessarily say that their their chemistry, body chemistry changes or that their uh, attractions change necessarily um, but that there's the restraint that people do because every Christian must discipline themselves to live in accordance with the law of God so have I, I made myself clear I just think there's uh, you know we can respond to one evil with an opposite evil and we really need to have something of a balance here Tim I was just going to say that and that's just with homosexuality but you can make that same argument as far as how we address other people who have come from you know, life of alcoholism or gambling or any other yeah. you know, sinful yeah. way of life that right. we still deal with. But yeah, and of course there are Christians that say, well, AA is wrong to say you're always an alcoholic. We have to say, I once was an alcoholic and now I'm no longer. But, you know, there are people that have far more acquaintance with what alcoholism is all about that would say that if I take a drink, I'm, I'm lost. I can't be a moderate drinker. And I have to respect that. I have to say, you know yourself better than I know you, and I'm not going to put upon you uh, some unrealistic standard because I think that's what the Bible's talking about. That such were some of you, such were, were drunks, means that they weren't drinking to excess. 
it's not saying there aren't people in the world who, you know, if I have a social drink, which I don't normally do, but if I did, I'm not going to want another drink later. But there are certain people that take a drink today, and, and, that, and that's it. They're just going to take another drink the next day, and another drink the next day. Before you know it, they're, they're back where they were before. So, again, I think I know about enough about the human tendency towards addictive sins uh, to say they're probably right. And, and, and some of these people that want to make unrealistic demands of what conversion brings, I, I, I tend to think they're wrong. I tend to think we have to say that uh, the people that know themselves and their propensities know more about the problem than we do. Because again, alcoholism is never anything I've had a problem with. But someone who does knows better, I think. Anyway, again, I just don't think the Bible is centered upon um, bringing the uh, people into a, a, a discipline um, that just in terms of time makes everything 100% correct again. I mean, there's some room for the final crisis of eternal work of glorifying us in the presence of Jesus. And, we, and there's sins we wrestle with. There are sins that we go to our grave fighting against. And uh, we don't claim in everything we have victory over every conceivable sort of sin. Anyway, so it's a, it's a matter of folly. Human sin just plunges us into the depths of folly. Plunges us into the depths of unprofitable activities and relationships. Whether it's idolatry, whether it's sexual passions. And then the final God giving them up is the more general picture. Um, Verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. All manner of unrighteousness. Paul's saying everything, anything I haven't dealt with thus far, I've dealt with idolatry, I've dealt with sexual sins, which interestingly enough, when you look at the New Testament letters, those are the sins that are the major sins that Paul addresses is idolatry and sexual immorality you think of the Corinthian letter there's only two places where Paul says in the Corinthian letter to flee something he says in Timothy flee youthful lusts but in the Corinthian letter there's two things he says you're to flee from and one is you're to flee from idolatry and the second one is flee from sexual immorality and he deals with idolatry in terms of meats offered to idols in 8 through 10. And then he deals with um, sexual morality, I guess it's in 6 and 7. And in each case, he says, flee from these things. Flee from these things. Uh, be like Joseph and leave your cloak into the, in the hands of Potiphar's wife and, and get out of there. Get out of there. Flee from it. It's just too prevalent. And those are the prevalent sins of the ancient world. I'm not sure what Paul would say in our day in terms of the sins he would make to be the preeminent ones. Um, It may not be the same. Certainly the sin of of violence is something that is horrific in our world today. Uh, People that just go out and kill people for pleasure. They get people to get, 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 kill people for the experience of killing people. How how often has that sort of thing been done? I mean, some of the things we we fight with in our world today are just um, shocking. And astounding. Um, I don't know what Paul would say. Certainly, sexual sins would still be high, high in his list. Idolatry, a little bit less so, but again, all these things are kind of a species of idolatry. You think of covetousness, which is idolatry. You think of, um, again, the worship of the human body 
in sexual sins is also a form of idolatry. It's all making the exchange, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. It's worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Paul says, all the other things, put it in here, filled with all manner. It's very universal. Nothing's excluded. All manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. CNN News. That's what it is. Just open up the newspapers. This is what's described. It's as current as everything we see around us. The way people live. Not retaining God in their knowledge. Not being thankful. Not honoring Him as God. Being given over. God says you like sin. Here it is. You're not going to have it just in manageable measures because there's no way to keep it within its bounds these are matters deeply embedded in the human heart deeply people who are habituated to be doers of these things and they do it in the face of knowing something of its implications that's where this ends in verse 32 It says, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who, again, practice such things, again, it's the practice of them that Paul seems mostly to be concerned about. It's the practice of these things. I know that Jesus speaks about the intent of the heart, and thus also sin. But folks, it's not a... If you've been told that all sin is equal, let me just disabuse you of of that. It's not... It's not just the same to think it than to do it. No. To act upon the desire is actually to put other people in jeopardy. To put people in the path of your sinful, wicked things. All sin is sin. All sin is worthy of judgment. But not all sin is equal. To think of it is not the same as to do it. To do it, to practice it, is far worse than just to think of it. Doris. Uh, yes, uh, good morning and God bless everyone. Uh, do you remember, uh, I don't know if you heard that we were going on about this pastor from Mexico. He used to abuse all the kids and young women from yeah. the congregation. Yeah. So we're talking about that sinosexual, and we see this in the Bible since Old Testament, New Testament, and we're still seeing this our time. Oh, yeah. So how that evil even used that people who supposed to preach the gospel, the yeah. truth yeah. of God, yeah. and they using the Bible, God, um, privilege that we have now to, to yeah. guide us in our life or to be good by using it to do it bad, yeah. evil. Yeah, yeah. I think what it happens in a lot of these cases, because you're right, it's not just someone in Mexico. This happens constantly. Um, I don't know if anybody ever uh, subscribes to Julie Roy's report 
on the uh, on the internet. Um, she's someone that's uncovered oodles of stuff that has happened in the church. I think she's located in Chicago, and that whole business that fell out. I don't know if you've heard about a guy named. Um, well, I won't get into it. A church in um, in Illinois. Anyway, um, but her newsfeed is filled with the reports of youth pastors that have been convicted of horrendous things, missionaries convicted of horrendous things, uh, all kinds of things that, you're right, it exists in the world today. Because I think the ministry attracts unstable people who are not well vetted. We tend to think if somebody's young, they, they love Jesus, they want to serve, sign them up, sign them up. And a lot of times, you just don't have any kind of psychological profile. What's this guy like? How does he treat cats or dogs or pets? Or how does he treat his brothers or sisters? Uh, just what is... Uh, what, those things are not even inquired about. Uh, of course, it's not inquired about in a lot of areas of concern. Politicians, for instance. And we have these scandals that happen again and again and again because these people often look for powerful offices. They look to be in positions where um, they can, as you say, abuse their power, abuse their influence. A lot of times they're, they're, they're good talkers. They've got a gift of gab. Uh, usually predators know how to get over on people. That's what they do. They're grifters. They're looking to get their way with other people. And they know how to do it. And they're very smooth. And they're very deceitful. And Again, you just don't know what's in the human heart. But there needs to be amongst uh, leaders in the church even those boundaries that we impose, such as we've attempted to do, do here. Is that, you know, if we have somebody new come in and they're going to start to work with children, we have to investigate who they are. The, the proper thing in these days is to get a police report to make sure they're not on some predator list, to make sure they don't have some kind of a sin of sexual predation in their background. We don't just let our children get exposed to adults who would be a threat to them. Certainly schools are in that same, same way. Um, I, I, I went to a pastor's meeting just this past week where um, there's this Christian school that goes on there you know, the children have been instructed not to talk, even to pastors, they, even people that they know, not to talk to them in the building. And we're taught, told not to talk to the children. Even if, even if it's a kid we know. We, even if it's one of my nieces, like a, uh, uh, my, my niece is in the Trinity Christian School. I didn't see her that day, but... Um, uh, I've been told she 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 stands there like a soldier, and she'll she'll see somebody she knows, and she'll go, hello. <laughs> you know, just, she'll 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 do. It. But she knows she's not supposed to go up and talk to him. Um, these are safeguards that, unfortunately, in the modern world, with the history that we've seen occur, we have to protect the children. We have to put in those um, those guardrails. Um, Again, you'd like to be more trusting of people, but it's probably not the wise thing. Uh, what did Reagan say? Uh, trust but verify. Trust but verify. There needs to be a little bit more of that spirit of trusting but verifying, making certain that the people are who, who they claim to be. Um, 
Yeah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And, uh, and unfortunately, it's in the Christian church because we are trusting, because we are forgiving, because we love to think the best about other people. Predators view us as a mark. They'll come into our midst and their main concern is not to worship God, but to see who they could exploit for their own ambitions, their own desires, and their own ends. And we have to be just aware, not suspicious, but just aware that people can be that way and just be on our guard and just be wise. Just be wise. We can't be naive to the reality of what's, what's occurred uh, in the Christian church. Um, I often kid, but it's true. You, read the, you see these news, uh, uh, true crime, like Dateline and 2020 and 48 Hours and all these things are on television. Every network has their own and they chronicle the crimes that have existed in our country. And um, it's an unusually large amount that involve professing Christian people. People that met in church. People that met in Bible study. People that went to Bible colleges. Pastors beginning to engage in relations with members of the church. I mean, the most outrageous thing was a pastor that actually preached at the funeral of the husband of his mistress, whom he killed. And he preached at his funeral. I mean, it's shocking. Absolutely shocking. But you can't say it doesn't, didn't happen, and you can't say it doesn't exist. So, I'd like to give a better report, but I, I would be contrary to Paul. Because Paul's report is just what this is. It's just what it is here. Living apart from God. Living out from His presence. Living without regard to His eye. Without regard to devotion to Him. And subjection to His norms. Suppressing truth and unrighteousness will lead us to every kind of folly, every kind of wicked act, every kind of evil deed, every kind of undisciplined pattern of living. And um, we'll do it in the face of knowing God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. They're always looking around for their co-criminals who feel the same ways that they feel about the crimes they commit and taking pleasure in the fact there are others that get away with the things they're doing. Can you say that people give approval to it by uh, like, kind of like sitting on the fence? You know, like not, you know, they may not verbally say I approve of that, but would they don't speak out against it or they don't in their minds? You know, well, says, if you're not for me, you're against me. Uh, something like that, that people give approval to it by being quiet. Yeah, well, well here, uh, these are people that practice these things that Paul's speaking about here. And they practice these things themselves. And they approve of others who practice the, the same things. Now, of course, there are other passages of Scripture that direct us to reprove the unfruitful works of darkness, to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather to reprove them. Um, 
And again, there are times that we're able to do that. But, you know, if you wanted to take upon yourself the ministry of approval of people, you know, just mingle through the world each day and go up to people that are littering and get, you know, <laughs> the naughty finger, the people that are, uh, you know, how many times are you in your car saying, well, where's a cop when you need one? Look what that guy just did. Look at him. He's making an old, his own shoulder on the road. He's making his own lane right there. Where's the police when you need them? I mean, people are going to do all sorts of things. And you might want to get out of your car and reprove them, but then you have to realize there isn't just a thing as road rage in the world today. You don't want to face the end of a, of a you know, of a, you know, someone that means business with a, a gun uh, facing you. Um, so, you know, within reason, I think certainly within relationships where we have a special responsibility to care for other people to uh, address issues. And again, you could do it all the time. And, you, you know, sometimes you've said things and you just have to wonder, how much more can I say? You know, I'm under obligation every single time I meet this person to say, you know, by the way, you really should be married. You really shouldn't be just shacking up. This is not God's will for, for marriage. And I think once you've made something known or, or shared your opinions with people, um, again, I think we just make ourselves available to people to to help them when we can, to love them and to seek to win them to the, into the kingdom. Um, not to be so much all the time reproving conduct. There are times to do it. You know, you know the old story of John Calvin in his school days. I think it was even before he was a, at least an evangelical Christian. But John Calvin got such a reputation for um, confronting people with uh, sin matters that in, in, the, um, in the Greek language, also in the Latin, there's the different cases of the noun. And one of them is called the accusative case. <laughs> he got that as his name. The accusative case. <laughs> Always accusing people. Sue. So. I was just going to say, 